Welcome to the Genealogy Gems Podcast, providing quick and innovative ways to make the absolute most out of your research time and creative ideas for sharing and displaying your family history. I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. Happy New Year, everyone, and welcome to Episode 57 of the Genealogy Gems Podcast. This is a particularly virtual episode because while you're listening to this, I am actually in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean on a cruise ship headed for the Caribbean. I'm very excited to be doing a series of genealogy classes for the Royal Caribbean Cruise Line and along the way enjoying the beautiful ports of the Eastern Caribbean. Our family has been on one cruise before. Uh, it was just a little three-nighter from L.A. to Mexico and back. But this time, it's just Bill and I, and we'll be enjoying this 12-night cruise just a few months before our 25th anniversary, which is kind of cool. Of course, I feel like I haven't packed enough clothes, and of course, Bill thinks that two pairs of shorts and a pair of flip-flops is enough, so I need to convince him that uh, they won't appreciate that in the formal dining hall. <laughs> I'm working on him. But by the time you hear this, we'll be on board, and it'll be all Okay. It's very cool how these cruise lines uh, offer such a wide range of educational programs. So not only can you climb the rock climbing wall if you're so inclined, which I am not inclined to do, or you can go ice skating on board or play putt-putt golf, um, but you can also sit back and learn a few new things along the way. So hopefully we'll get a lot of new uh, genealogists started up on this cruise. So while I'm sitting in my deck chair reading No Name by Wilkie Collins, I invite you to sit back and enjoy this episode. Now, pass the sunscreen. Profile America, Monday, January 12th. The Frisbee as we know it was introduced this week in 1957, giving people of all ages, along with some talented dogs, an excuse for hours of fun. The name is thought to have come from the Frisbee Baking Company, which baked pies for colleges in New England for many years. Students soon discovered the empty pie tins could be sailed through the air. In 1948, Walter Morrison invented a plastic version, which he called the Pluto Platter, to cash in on the UFO craze. Today, the Frisbee is an established part of the inventory of the nation's more than 45,000 sporting goods stores, which ring up sales of over $26 billion annually. You can find these and more facts about America from the U.S. Census Bureau online at census.gov. Last year, I had hoped to attend the Southern California Genealogical Society Jamboree for the first time, but it turned out that my daughter had an out-of-town softball tournament that same weekend, so I didn't go. But this year, my calendar is clear for June 26th to the 28th of 2009, and I will not only be there, but I'll be teaching some classes, and I will also have a booth in the exhibit hall. Now, I've heard such great things about the event, and uh, recently at the Federation of Genealogical Societies Conference uh, in Philadelphia, I met up with another West Coast gal on the East Coast, and I got a chance to learn more about the Jamboree. And that West Coast gal was none other than Paula Hinkle, who is co-chair of the Southern California Genealogical Society Jamboree. So here's my conversation with her. 
Well, you know, I was walking down the hall here at FGS, and I'm waiting for my next to the last class on the next to the, on the last day, and I saw Paula Hinkle standing in the corner over here and waiting for probably the same class. And um, hi, Paula. Welcome to uh, Genealogy Gems podcast. Hi, Lisa. It's great to talk to you. And yes, I was hiding against the crowds as well. <laughs> and it's so funny because um, you were one of the people that I wanted to actually get a chance to meet in person while I was here. And who should climb in my shuttle bus <laughs> from the airport to the hotel than Paula? And um, so I, I'm curious, first of all, because I want to talk to you. I know you are very involved with the Southern California uh, Genealogical Society and their upcoming conference. But what are your impressions of FGS? Well, this is my first national conference, so I didn't really know what to expect. And, and it was funny because I came at it from a conference planner's point of view. It was right. very strange. Oh, they do that really well. Oh, I'm going to steal that idea. Oh, that's a great idea. Oh, we do better. Uh, <laughs> and and the, I'm, I'm in awe of the facility and the, the exhibit hall. Everything is so well organized, and they've done just a marvelous job. But it was really interesting to see, oh, we do that. Oh, we could do that. Oh, that would work for us. I wish we had this much more space. Um, what we could do with a place like the convention center, it would be great. But the, it's it's very well run. They have more speakers than we do. We have exhibitors. Space is a little bit larger, but we have a lot of the same kinds of activities, the same kinds of talks. And it, it's been really fun to compare the two. I've had a great time. That's awesome. And, you know... The thing is, is that a lot of these, obviously just because of population, occur somewhat on the East Coast or Midwest, and you and I are both from the West Coast. Yes. And so that's why I'm so interested <laughs> in your conference and, and bringing more of these kinds of terrific events to those of us out on the West Coast. There's a ton of us out there doing research as well. We have a great market. We're in Southern California. Last year's uh, genealogy jamboree, which was done in June last year, drew every people from Washington State over to Texas, and we had a great contingent from Arizona. We had all of the state of California was well represented from northern down south. And, of course, we have a lot of local people that come every year. We had a wonderful mix of people. Uh, it was great to see how our advertising and, and our outreach really worked this year. So we went a long way out, and we got a lot of people. Did you notice something here that you thought, ah, oh, I'd love to see that happen down in Southern California? Oh, God, there were so many. The banquet had a different flavor. You know, being from oh, Southern yeah. California, we're kind of laid back, yeah. and it's all kind of kind of casual California. Casual California. <laughs> Everybody dressed to the nines, and there was lots of sparkles, and, and thought, oh, that would be really kind of fun to have that high level of, of an event. I'm not sure that our folks will do that, but it was fun to see that being handled a little, little bit differently. The awards that were given out were very moving, and they were very inspirational, and we don't do that, and that's something that we could certainly adapt here. Um, we have this, this exhibit hall, for example, had lots of representatives from Ireland and Britain, yes. and our focus in June of 2009 is going to be British Isles, so I hope that we're going to be able to draw over some of those accents. And, and have some speakers and some exhibitors from those areas. And so we'll have to see, but it looks really promising. Good. Well, so the last event that you guys had was in June 2008. And uh, tell me about your upcoming 
2009 conference? Uh, well, we took a couple of weeks off between the planning for <laughs> closing out 2008. And Why, to have a life or yeah, what? We, you know, we had this moving, all of us moved. It was very strange. But uh, we have our committee is actively working to plan the 2009 con- convention or conference. We have um, already booked our hotel at the, at the Marriott, so we'll be back there again. Great. We're starting to put our, our call for papers for speakers is out, and we'll be closing as of September 30th. And we've already got uh, the, about, the, about half of the exhibit floor is already sold. We had such a great conference last year that we just exhibitors just flocked to us, so it's really great. Um, we'll be starting to put out our, our marketing materials probably the first of the year. We'll probably start to put our, our direct mail piece, which is what we really get a lot of attendance from our direct mail piece. But you'll start to see notices and, and publications and things, and, and the FGS uh, Delegate Digest and the NGS News, all of those things will start to be announcing our, our jamboree with our speakers as we start to pick them. We usually do something a little odd. <laughs> I'll call say odd. We do it a lot of fun things at our conference. Like two years ago, we had um, a, a Creole focus as our ethnic focus, oh. and we had a Zydeco band on Saturday oh, awesome. nights. So we had a Zydeco dance, and then last year in, we had a, a focus of German and Jewish ethnicities. So we had an Umpapa band on Friday night with our with our reception, and uh, several of us dressed up in later hosen and dirndls. And, and <laughs> I want to see that. Yeah. Well, well, the greatest part was the most fun was when we had reenactors from the Ren Fair, Renaissance Fair. Uh, there's a 16th century mercen- German mercenary group. That's my favorite part of the Ren Fair anyway. And they came out and set up their camp with camp followers and the babies who were brand brand new babies and soldiers walking around with very with their weapons and their tall sharp pointy things which was really interesting. That's a very technical term. Yeah, tall sharp, sharp pointy, pointy things. things. Yes and the hotel was a little disconcerted when they saw the shoulder soldiers with the tall sharp pointy things um, and, and they got a little nervous but uh, they brought their stocks and we put uh, the people in the stocks and took pictures and it just was it was just a great time. So we tend to do a little bit lighter fun thing, but it's all very serious as well in terms of getting the information out and getting the, the focus of the exhibitors and the speakers and all the other activities that we do uh, for Jamboree. We did a, a bus tour of Hollywood Forever Cemetery on Friday last year, and we hope to do something like that this year. We had an introduction to genealogy class with lots of people who'd never been doing any genealogy come in for that. And then we had a kids' genealogy camp for the little kids, which was a great attention grabber for the community. We had lots of television and, and newspaper coverage for that. So it was fun. That's really neat. You know, if anybody reads my blog, uh, the Genealogy News blog, knows that my uh, New Year's resolution this year was to have more fun. I just think that, you know, we're... we're having so much excitement in terms of finding what we're looking for, but gosh, there is so much fun to be had, and this is such a great group of people. And that's exactly what we try to do. It's a little, you know, even Dickie Smith noticed that they, you know, they do things a little different than some other conferences do. <laughs> so we have a little bit of a twist to it. It's a Southern California twist. And we put the blog together, and so we tried to communicate through the blog, and we did things like the fast food tour, and told people where to get good hot dogs and hamburgers in Los Angeles, and things like that. So it was great fun. Oh, fantastic. Well, Tell us next what your website address is so we can find you. Okay, the website is www.s as in Sam, cgs again as in Sam, 
genealogy.com. That's Southern California Genealogical Society, scgsgenealogy.com. And we also have, there's lots of links to the blog, which will be starting back up again. And as we get our registration materials and more information about our speakers, there's a big jamboree section that builds every year. And so you can get lots of information there. Perfect. Well, and don't you worry, because um, I'm going to have a link to that website address in the show notes for this episode. Paula, as always, great to see you. Fun to run into you again. And um, I can't wait to see you on the West Coast. Yes, I'm glad to have you. I'd be glad to have you come out. That would be great to have you. And what time's our shuttle? Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm following you. <laughs> Thank you, Paula. Goodbye. Profile America, Tuesday, January 13th. A man was born on the state in 1885 who turned honesty and hard work into a successful business and created a cultural icon in the process. He was Alfred Fuller who started making high-quality brushes in his sister's basement in 1906. He talked with customers to find the kind of brushes they wanted and hired a strong door-to-door sales force. The brushes and the salesmen were often featured by the media. Comedian Red Skelton made a popular movie called The Fuller Brush Man, followed shortly after by The Fuller Brush Girl, starring Lucille Ball. Alfred Fuller's company continues to this day. Making brushes, brooms, and mops is a $2.2 billion a year business in the U.S. Profile America is a public service of the U.S. Census Bureau, now preparing for the 2010 census. Well, one thing we all have in common is that we have family photos. But our methods for keeping and preserving them might range from stuffing them in a drawer to storing them in pristine museum-quality archival boxes. Well, one thing is for sure, the elements are the enemies of our beloved photographs. So I've invited Sally Jacobs, the practical archivist, to get us all on the same page when it comes to photo preservation. She's an archivist who has never met an antique photo or a Czech beer that she didn't like. Hi, Sally. Hi, Lisa. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Now, Sally, you are known for your archiving tips and your geeky tidbits for genealogists, as you call them. Well, we want you to hit us with your best geeky photo archival bits. So I want to talk with you today about what these little demons are that we're trying to keep our photos away from. And then I want to talk about the best places and the best ways to store photographs. And then we could kind of finish up with your best and your favorite tip. So first off, what are those nasty things that we need to keep our photos away from? Well, there's a list. It's not very long, and it's not too complicated, but there are some pretty serious enemies for the photographs that we want to bring with us into the future and we want to hand down to future generations. Um, one particularly horrible, horrible thing is humidity. Now, a high humidity level can encourage molds, and if you've seen any, any pictures of photographs that have survived something like a tornado or a hurricane or a flood, you've seen what can happen. And one of the tricky things with mold is you really can't get rid of it. It's going to be around forever. You can deactivate it, but it's going to come back as soon as the moisture levels are high enough. Well, I bet this is really something that those folks down south were facing after all the storms we've had these last couple of months. Absolutely. And it's funny because there's also a problem with 
extremely low humidity, which isn't as much of a problem for as many people. But when the humidity gets very, very low, photographs can actually crack. Really? Absolutely. Another big enemy is heat. Now, heat, it's not that heat itself is such a danger, but what heat does is it speeds up the chemical processes that are already going on in that photograph, right? Photographs are, they have many layers. They have three different layers in them, and they're also made up of any number of chemicals, depending on the process that was made to create it. And sometimes the rinsing wasn't really done as well. If you remember the, the wonderful convenience that was one-hour photos, well, for a really nice archival print, you probably wanted to rinse those photos in water for a full hour. So there's a lot of family photos, snapshots in particular from more recent years, that may have some crazy things going on without already. And you don't want to encourage that to happen any quicker by storing it somewhere that has a high heat. So we don't want to we don't want to cook them. I, I noticed um, certainly in my like 1980s photographs, it seems like they're already looking kind of bad. Yeah, one of the tricky things is that you know all the different photo processes that were used to create the film, that were used to create the prints, and that were used to develop both the film and the prints, those are proprietary, meaning the companies that came up with those formulas are under no obligation to share them. In fact, those were trade secrets. So each batch is a little bit different. You know, every, you know, they were always trying to improve their papers for their prints. You know, in the 80s, the very popular thing was the matte finish. Right. It had almost a bumpy finish to it, which anyone who's tried to scan one of those <laughs> realized pretty quickly didn't work so well later on. Um, but it's tricky. There's a lot of different things that can be going on. So generally, you want to keep it away from high heat. Another tricky thing, and this is related to humidity and heat, and that's fluctuating levels. So I mentioned previously that a, a print is made up of several layers. Mm-hmm. The tricky thing is that the different layers will absorb and give off um, ambient moisture in the air at different rates. So that mm-hmm. can also lead to cracking. Right. So you don't want to have a situation where the temperature will rise during the day and humidity levels will go up and then they'll come crashing down. So it's tricky for people who are store, for family archivists, basically, who are storing their photos in their homes to try and hit any sort of consistent temperature. So when I'm talking to family archivists, I don't start giving numbers about temperature and relative humidity. My main advice is to try and keep it as stable as possible because that, that cycling is going to put a lot of stress on the photos, particularly it's the paper, the, the backing layer that absorbs and gives off moisture very easily and quickly. There's a, a $10 word for that, and it's hygroscopic. So <laughs> bring that out of your next cocktail party. <laughs> well, we'll just focus on keeping it nice and steady then. And that's a really good thing to know. I don't, you know, I always thought there was some perfect magic number, but that makes sense. You're just trying to keep things stable. Exactly. And I mean, there are target numbers for institutions that have, you know, a very regimented and controlled environment. But sure. that's not, so that's basically out of reach for most home collections. Right. And the fact that you might not be hitting a specific number does not necessarily in and of itself spell disaster, right? That's the practical part of practical archivists. They take the standards for my industry, basically, if you want to call it that, right, for archivists, and I try and interpret those in a way that will keep family collections as safe as possible. Because one thing that I realized, in fact, in my first professional job as an archivist is that, you know, pound for pound, right, there are many, many more historical materials in private hands 
than there are in institutions. Oh, absolutely. So I sort of, it became my mission to try and help folks keep that history as well-preserved as possible while keeping it in the family. Right. And another big danger, and this is one I think a lot of people are familiar with, is um, UV light. And that can come from either sunlight or it can also come from uh, fluorescent bulbs inside the house. And the main um, danger of that is fading. And I think this is something we're all familiar with. We see it even if not in our photographs, we see it in our furniture. Anything that's sitting up near a window, you can see some pretty dramatic fading. Right. So, and that you said fluorescent bulbs. Um, are there any types of bulbs that would be more uh, easier on our photographs? Well, there are actually, if you have fluorescent bulbs, there are, I know for the tube kind, there are, in fact, sleeves that you can put on them. Oh. That will block some of the UV rays. The trick about that is they don't last forever. The actual sleeve itself will lose its effectiveness over time. But another way to sort of um, protect your photos from UV light, if it's something that you want to display, now generally my advice is, you know, if we're talking about two-dimensional objects, it's so easy to make a copy. But if you want to display your photos, my first advice always is to display a copy and keep the original in a nice, stable environment that doesn't have fluctuating humidity or temperatures and that's away from light. If for some reason that's not an option, there are um, replacements for glass and frames that have UV protection built into them. I think you have a choice between you can get glass that's been coated or you can get a, an acrylic material that has the UV protection actually built in to the material itself. That's a really good option, I guess, you know, because I know I inherited a large um, framed portrait. Boy, I've been really afraid to take that thing apart. And so yeah. it is the original, but that's a great idea. I could replace the glass. And other practical tips are, you know, if, if there's a wall in your house that doesn't receive direct sunlight, that's probably the best place. And I'm a very strong advocate for sharing your photos. I, I don't want to discourage people from displaying the photos that they love so much. But again, first choice, display a copy. It's so easy to do that, and you're keeping the original safe. And then, you know, if that's not possible, try and be smart. Use drapes, right? Pick a wall that doesn't get direct light. I imagine that would lend itself that same idea to kind of where in the house you might decide to display your photographs. Exactly. Or even store them. Right. Great. And then um, you... um, are there any pests? Because I know I just recently inherited a box that came out of somebody's attic, so you can imagine the uh, little chew marks that I found. But uh, what about pests in our home? Right. This is, this is one of the main reasons, aside from uh, lack of temperature control, that you don't want to store your photos in an attic or a basement or, even worse, in a, a garage or any sort of outbuilding. Right? There are... Um, Materials in the glue and in paper especially that there are different kinds of pests that like them. There's the sort of creepy crawly variety, right, silverfish, um, bookworms, and then there's the kind that really freak me out, and that's the furry kind. <laughs> oh, yuck. You know, and, and they aren't always necessarily chewing them uh, for food, but they, will, they like to use paper for nesting materials. And they oh. like to get into boxes and see what's in there. Right, right. Okay. I actually worked... Uh, in a used bookstore once, and someone brought in a bag of books to sell, and there was a dead rat inside. I just said, I'm sorry, we can't, I can't offer you anything for these books. Oh, my. Well, then that leads us definitely to 
what is the best place to store photographs to keep away the uh, the little creatures as well as just dealing with climate control? What what do you suggest there? Um, well, like I said, the basic rule it's, it's easier to talk about start with talking about where you don't want to store your photos. Okay. Right? So an attic is very hot in the summer, especially. Um, a basement is pretty much too wet. A finished basement that has climate control and has a dehumidifier is an okay choice, but in general, basements are pretty prone to flooding, and if you have another option, um, I would advise people, at least for the photos that you care about the most, you know, maybe your oldest photos or the ones that are the most rare. Generally speaking, the safest spot is an internal closet in your house, and I, I recommend an internal one because those tend to be the most stable temperatures. So that might be like our linen closet. Exactly, exactly. Okay. And um, we actually have in my house, we have a, a, a back room that has a closet in that room. And one time in the summer, I was getting something out of there. And it's a southern-facing wall, so it gets a lot of sun. And I'm not even getting you. The temperature in that closet wasn't even warm. It was hot. And this is in an air-conditioned house. But, of course, we don't leave the closet doors open to air-condition them. That's crazy. Right. <laughs> So you want to choose um, a closet that has the least amount of cycling temperatures. Another option that works really well for some people is to use under-the-bed storage mm-hmm. um, with the idea that you don't want to use it if it's near a radiator or a heat vent. So it kind of sounds like before we do the final placement of these items, we really need to put our hand on the wall. We need to reach our hand under the bed and make sure that that we're not feeling something too warm or too cold or, or some breeze blowing through because that's the easiest way to know that this is a good space or not a good space. Absolutely. Generally speaking, you know, you want to be where people are comfortable. Right. And you would not be very comfortable in an attic long term. Especially <laughs> <laughs> an unfinished one. And uh, the other thing about garages and outbuildings is, you know, not just that they tend to not be temperature controlled, but also that you're not keeping an eye on your stuff. So if there's anything happening, if there's any sort of critter getting in there, or if there's any sort of water leaking, you won't know because you're just not going to be spending time there in the same way that you will inside an interior part of your house. Oh, that's a great point. If you can you know, pass your eye, pass it every once in a while, you'll know where you're at. So, so we've found our location in the house, but here's the big question that always comes up is, what's the best way to store the photographs? What are we putting them in? to keep them safe. Um, we've all heard a lot of different options, so what does the practical archivist recommend? Well, when I talk about storage environment, I'd like to talk about um, macro environment versus micro environment. So the macro environment is the environment in either you know your whole house or your whole room. That's the sort of things we've been talking about when we talk about temperature, humidity, light levels. Now, that can be very expensive to control. Fortunately, you can mitigate all of those factors by the storage materials that you use, and that's the micro-environment. So instead of talking about the environment in a room, you can talk about the microclimate inside a single box. And the one main tip, my crusade, if you will, (laughs) about storage materials is to let people know that there's a test. It's called the Photographic Activity Test, or PAT for short. And it's, it's it's an accelerated aging test. And it's done by an independent body called the Image Permanence Institute. So this is not the manufacturer of a material telling you that it's safe. This is an objective scientific test that takes a significant amount of time where um, 
the material that you're using for storage is tested along with photographs. And after pressure and heat are applied to sort of simulate the passage of time, they're checked again to see if anything has changed, and there are certain markers that they need to meet. And it is really the best, it's not a guarantee, but it's really your best bet to know that the materials you're going to be putting your photographs up next to will not affect or change those photos. So if we're purchasing materials to, to do our um, storage, we should be looking for this past photographic activity test. Will it be marked on the box? Generally speaking, it's not marked on the box. It's also, unfortunately, not something you're going to find if you walk into a store. So a stationary store that, that sells um, photographic supplies, those storage materials may in fact be acid-free, which is good. I think that word has gotten out really well to most people that acidic materials will in fact damage photographs and other paper as well. Um, in order to find materials that have passed the photogra- photographic activity test, you need to go to an archival supplier. And there are, there are a number to choose from. There's uh, Gaylord, Metal Edge, Light Impressions, Light Impressions, uh, really focuses their mission exclusively on photos. Now, for each of those vendors, not everything they sell has passed this test or even been submitted for testing. But each of those companies are getting better and better over time at, in their catalog, when you see a photo of the materials, it'll either say on the photo or there'll be a little call-out box with the specifications. And if it's passed that test, it'll be on the list as one of the things. So we're just going to be much safer if we um, start there, and um, certainly we're not going to likely purchase something that's going to harm us from one of those vendors because that's really their business, right? Absolutely, absolutely, and I, just, I can't stress it enough. An independent test is your best bet because the term archival itself is meaningless in the commercial sense, right? There is no government body that regulates the use of that term. I could call anything I want archival and legally sell it with that description. Same thing goes for photo safe. I mean, those are simply meaningless terms in the marketplace. Oh, my goodness. You're shattering our preconceptions about this because, you know, we all think when we see that we're in good hands. Wow, that's really the case, huh? It's not. um, It's like saying it's uh, low fat or whatever relative to what. (laughs) Right. And, and, you know, I want to emphasize that doesn't necessarily mean that something that hasn't been submitted for this test is inherently dangerous. Mm -hmm. I'm saying as a consumer, if you're making your decision to put down good money for quality materials, this is your best bet to know you're getting what you paid for. I, one time I was on vacation with my family, and we were in a, a small town in Wisconsin at a stationery store, and they were selling um, those magnetic photo albums. Remember those? Very oh, gosh, chemicals. yes. I like to refer to those as the chemical sandwich of doom. <laughs> it's pretty much if you wanted to come up with the worst, most unsafe place to put your photos, that would be it, right? The backing board is acidic. Strips of glue are acidic. The overlay is vinyl, which is a very volatile material. It changes dramatically over time. And you're essentially trapping those photographs in that horrible environment. Anyway, we were in the store, and there was one of those albums, and it said photo safe on it, and I I just, I lost it. (laughs) Like, come on, honey, we're leaving. It's like, no, you don't understand. That's not right. (laughs) They shouldn't be able to do that. You know, I've got photo albums. I can't even un, I can't even peel back that cover anymore because it's like permanently sandwiched. It can happen. And sometimes the opposite happens. You know, if you're lucky, the glue will dry out first 
Yeah. And then they'll just be free. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I'm about that too because I do have some tips for that. It's one of the one of the easiest things that a family archivist can do to improve the storage conditions of their photos, and that's to get them out of those albums. To 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 get them out into safer um, locations. Pretty much into anything, right? You can choose. From from my own personal family collection, I have two different systems that I use. There's the photos that I've chosen to put in albums, but there are many, many more that don't go in albums. Mm-hmm. The ones that don't go in albums, I like to put in um, paper envelopes that mimic the, the size and shape of the um, sort of photos. You, the envelopes, when you picked up your prints, would come from the photo processor. Oh, right. You can fit a whole roll of prints in there. You can even fit the negatives in front. The great thing about it being paper is that you can write in pencil on the envelope about what's in there. Okay. Super easy. Um, There are other options. There are plastic sleeves. I personally tend to prefer paper because it breathes. And as I mentioned before, you know, photographs are made up of complex chemical layers, and they're changing over time. And to put it in plastic, in some ways, is a little bit risky because it's basically it's stewing in its own juices, as my preservation teacher would always say in library school. The, the good thing about plastic is that it's clear and you can see it, and nobody's going to be touching those photos because the oils and salts that are on our fingertips, when you transfer that onto a photo, that can actually damage the photo. That's the, why archivists wear white gloves. Yeah, I could I could see that as long as you know you're not tempted so much to grab that photo out of there with your hands and. And that kind of um, brings to mind what you were telling me was the golden rule of preservation. Tell us what that is. That's right. The golden rule of preservation, this is true for photographs and other, pretty much anything, and that's do nothing that can't be undone, right? And this is sort of a lesson learned the hard way by um, conservators over time in that, you know, things that seemed like a really good idea at the time, like scotch tape, <laughs> rubber bands, laminating, when those are things that are difficult to undo and they turn out to be, in fact, not a good idea but a terrible idea, then you've got a double problem. You've got the damage that's caused by the bad material and it's really difficult to change it. So there are, take lamination, for example. That's actually a heat process that fuses the material to the plastic it's wrapped in. Right. There is no way to undo that. I imagine even picking up a photograph and sticking our little greasy finger on there, in a way, is doing one of those things that can never be undone. Right, and the tricky thing with with fingerprints is the damage won't show up for quite a long time. There are are chemical materials out there to clean prints and film, which um, photo professionals have used forever and all time. But, again, you know, you, you use a chemical solvent to clean a photograph and it looks clean, but you don't know what the long-term effect of that is going to be 10, 20, 30 years down the line. When it's something that you're only keeping for the short term, it sort of doesn't matter. But when it's an ancestor photo and you want to make sure that generation after generation has a chance to see and enjoy that photo, I always recommend caution. And, you know, that makes me uh, go back to something that you said previously, which is, you know, it is always easy to make copies right. if we treat the originals as the precious gem and store them properly. We can touch the copies all we want if we really want to. But oh my gosh, yeah, make copies, cut them into flower shapes. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's crazy creatively. I remember when I started library school; it was uh, the mid '90s, and I remember hearing for the first time that was when scrapbooking was just starting to take off. 
and I remember sitting in a room with 30 or 40 of my <laughs> cohorts, and we were just horrified that people were taking 19th century photos and cutting them into different shapes. Of course, scanning technology was expensive then. It wasn't anywhere near as um, easy to do yourself as it is now. Right. And, you know, it was sort of a two-edged sword because on the one hand, people were actually enjoying their family's historic photos and they were sharing them, which was great, but, oh, they were doing something that couldn't be undone. Mm -hmm. There's a tremendous amount of historical information in the background of photos, as anyone who's tried to figure out <laughs> um, who's in an ancestor photo knows. And, uh, oof. But, right, there's no reason... There's no reason to ever cut up an original now. Right. All that cropping could really make, uh, could change the context of the photo. But as you say, nowadays uh, we can enjoy the originals, but just have a blast all we want with. And, and I'm, I'm a firm believer in that. You know, all of the information that we collect as genealogists, all of the wonderful original photos we collect, what in the world do they mean if we don't share them? Well, Sally, these are all fantastic um, tips. I think we're all going to feel a lot more informed. We're going to go in those stores and, and <laughs> tell those uh, salespeople, get those magnetic books out of their stores. Now, but, um, you know, it's good to feel empowered, like you have knowledge and uh, you can hopefully put things in place that are going to last a really long time. Absolutely. Nothing's going to last forever, but you can absolutely extend the life of your photos by putting them in a, in a good storage environment, you know, the best microenvironment that you can afford and the best macro environment that you can afford. Fantastic. Well, tell the audience um, how they can find you, your website, and you've got a terrific blog. Absolutely. Um, they can find me at practicalarchivist.com, and that will lead you uh, directly to my blog. I still have some information on my website for jacobsarchival.com, mm -hmm. but that is going to move soon to the Practical Archivist domain. And I highly recommend that uh, those of you listening sign up for her terrific newsletter. She's got, uh, you've got a great little handout that you send folks when they sign up for free. Tell us what that is. Absolutely. It's my little thank you gift <laughs> to subscribers. And it's called Eight Blunders People Make When They Scan Photos and How to Avoid Every Single One of Them. And it's, it's, it's pretty short. It's not too long, but it does address the most common mistakes that people make. These are things, I've, I've taught many workshops on this topic, and uh, the one about file uh, format in particular often <laughs> causes the greatest number of groans from people in the audience <laughs> who have already launched big scanning projects and haven't thought ahead about what it means to <clears throat> to save those scans as a compressed format. So well, I, I'm big enough to admit I definitely made a couple of those blunders, but getting your newsletter, getting that sheet, I've already put things uh, in on the right course. So uh, it's <laughs> it's great. great, and I really recommend it. Sally, thank you so much. I hope you'll come back to the show, won't oh, you? Oh, I would love to. I can talk about this stuff forever. Wonderful. We'll take everything we can get. Thank you. Sure, thank you. Well, we've come to the close of another episode of Genealogy Gems Podcast. For all the show notes for this episode, including the links to the websites that I mentioned, go to genealogygems.tv and click through to episode 57. Be sure and listen to my other family history podcast. It's called Family History Genealogy Made Easy, where in each episode, uh, we're going to cover what you need to know step by step to climb your family tree. And in the most recent episode, we spend the entire show really going in-depth into posting your family tree online. 
and we talk with experts in the field to get their best tips for making the most out of those. So you won't want to miss that. You can find the Family History Genealogy Made Easy podcast by going to my website at genealogygems.tv and just click that family history icon, uh, the album art that you see there on the front page. And of course, you can always subscribe to that show for free also in iTunes. And speaking of iTunes, it really is the best way to follow and listen to podcasts. Subscribing to the show is free, and you can do so by simply clicking the iTunes button on the homepage at my website, and then click the subscribe link in iTunes. It will download to your iTunes library, and then you'll receive every new episode as it's published, so you're not going to miss anything. Be sure to click the Get All button on your library listing for the show in iTunes, um, so you can download all the previous episodes as well. And you'll want to visit the Genealogy Gems TV channel at YouTube, where you can watch lots of great genealogy-themed videos. Most recently published is my interview with Dick Eastman. And as always, there are lots of ways to contact me. Uh, you can email me at genealogygemspodcast at gmail.com. And you can also catch up on what's going on in the world of genealogy at the Genealogy Gems news blog. You know, 2008 was an amazing year for the Genealogy Gems podcast, and I want to thank you. I want to thank each and every one of you for being part of the show, sending in your ideas and your stories, um, giving it great reviews in iTunes. You guys are amazing, and I, I want to say that I am truly honored and humbled that you spend your precious time here with me. So thank you for that, and 2009 is going to be a great year, so stay tuned. So until next time, thanks so much for listening, friend, and I'll talk to you soon.